A man in dire straits, a man in a mess, as Mark said. A man appealing to his God for help. Have you ever cried out to God like that? Have you cried out to God from the depths of your sorrow and your your pain and your anguish and cried out, God save me. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. What was wrong with David? Why did he cry out like this? Turn to Psalm 25 with me. So David here mentions several different problems which he encountered at this time, and he records them. Many times when people pray a prayer like this, many times nobody hears it but them and God. But we have this wonderful psalm to nourish us, to help us, recorded for us that we might learn from it. David talks about his enemies, verse 2. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. We don't know exactly who these enemies were. My theory is it was Absalom, David's son, who rebelled against him, that traitor who turned against his own father. And this, if you recall, was a result of David's sin. His adultery had cost him a great deal. Remember, friends, if you ever attempted to go down a sinful path, if you go down this path, it can lead to disaster, not just for you, but for a wider group of people. Don't even think about it. David committed adultery. His kingdom was torn. And the Lord said to him through the prophet Nathan, the sword will not depart from your kingdom. Now, God was merciful to David. God restored David, but he had to live forever with the consequences of his sins. And David asked the Lord here, cries out, Lord, deliver me from my enemies. Deliver me from the shame that they would put me to. And this caused him a great deal of inner turmoil and trouble. If you look at verse 7, he asked God to Remember not the sins of my youth, my rebellious ways. He was haunted by his sin. He was haunted by the things that he'd done wrong, the rebellion that he committed against God in his younger days. And look towards the end of the psalm, verses 16 onwards. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish, as Mark said, a heart cry of a desperate man. These are not the words of a happy man at ease in his palace. These are the words of a fugitive, fearful for his life, like so many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world today. Hopeless situation. And what does David do? What does he do? He goes to the one place where he can expect to find help, and he throws himself on the mercy of God. He makes his appeal. What does he do? Verse 1, look at this. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. He lifts up his soul to God, doesn't he? When he lifts up his soul, this is true prayer. Prayer of the heart, lifting up one's soul before God. Your whole body, mind, every part of you, lifting up your heart to God and crying out to him. This is how we ought to pray, especially in these kind of situations. And he asks God here to do several things. He makes requests of God, petitions. Not demands. None of us is in a place to demand anything from God. David cannot demand from God. He has sinned. But he comes to God and appeals to his mercy. Forgive me, O Lord. Look what he asked for. Number two, verse two. Deliverance from enemies. We mentioned that. Verse 11. Forgiveness for his many sins. Verse four. Guidance in the ways of God. He was obviously confused and felt in need of guidance. Verse 15. He sums this up. Only he will release my feet from the snare. Snare being a trap 
that catches people. He felt as though he was trapped and caught. Only God can do this. If you find yourself in a snare, if you find yourself in a trap, perhaps caused by your own sin, perhaps caused by other circumstances, only God can release your feet from the snare. Don't try anything else. It won't work. Only God can release your feet from the snare. Also, I like, what I like about this psalm is that he reminds himself many times of God's character and God's ways. He prays and he meditates on God. He says, Lord, this is who I am. I lift up my soul to you. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. And then he meditates on God, the goodness of God. Look at some of the things he says about God. Verse 6, he is merciful and loving. What else does he say? Verse 8, he is good and upright. And verse 9, he guides the humble what is right. He's loving and faithful. Verse 3, this, this, great, this great hope, of, this great cry of faith. No one, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. That is his conviction. That is emphatic. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. And he says that with true conviction of a man who knows his God. This is a good way to pray. When we're desperate, it's so good for us to pray to God and then meditate on his ways and think about God's past faithfulness to us. Think about what his word says about his character. Meditate on that and then come back and pray some more. So we know who our God is. That's the engine for our prayer life, knowing who our God is and what he has done for us. And that's what David was motivated by. Now look at this, verses 6 and 7. I want you to see this. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. Everything in this psalm, I believe, is encapsulated and summarized by these verses. Remember me, O Lord. If I had to give a title to this sermon today, I would call it Remember Me. Because all of us, for all of us, the greatest need that we have is to be remembered by God. So he asked God here to remember two things and to forget something else. Verses 6 and 7. First of all, remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love. Then he asked God not to remember something, to remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. And then finally, he says, According to your great love, remember me, for you are good, O God. So remember your mercy and love, remember me, but don't remember my sins. So I think you can sum up the whole message of this psalm is David's asking God to remember him. This is a bit strange. Is God forgetful? In my middle age, I'm getting more and more forgetful. Absent-minded, and some of you are far further along than me. What day was it again, Annie? So, so, but is God forgetful? Is God absent-minded? Does God forget? No, this is not that kind of forgetfulness. When he asks God to remember him, it's not that God has just forgotten. It slipped God's mind. God is not like that. But he wants God to, to deliberately and consciously take away these things from his thoughts, to not hold him responsible anymore, to not reject, to not forsake, but to forget. For example, when my children do something wrong, I don't choose to remember. I remember very well the time that Daniel broke. What was it he broke? Something. He broke. Daniel's always breaking things. I don't choose to remember those things and hold him responsible. I choose to forget, put it out of my mind, and treat him as though he had never done anything wrong. That's what David's asking God to do. And when he's asking him to forget, that's what, what he's saying here. 
Think no more about it. When he's asking God to remember him, he's saying, Lord, bring me into your mind. Remember me. Look upon me. Do not reject me. Now, this is where it gets a bit complicated. And this is where I'm kind of straying close to the boundary of what I'm allowed to do. Don't worry. When we look at remember me, what does that remind you of in the Bible? Somebody else. Do you remember another desperate man cried out, remember me, in his pain and anguish and despair? This prayer, this man prayed, was not such, such an eloquent psalm kind of long prayer as David's. And this man was at the other end of the spectrum from David. He wasn't God's covenant king. He was a criminal. And his situation was even more desperate. He wasn't just being hounded by his enemies. His enemies had got him already. They got their man and they nailed him up to be crucified next to Jesus. And this was a man who'd lived all his life, probably wasted it on sin, caused misery and pain for other people. Sin always causes consequence for other people. And this man had done nothing useful and he'd met a sorry end and he was dying a bad death next to Jesus. I want you to, to know that whether you be a king, God's covenant king, highly exalted and God's child, perhaps fallen into sin, or whether you be a reprobate, far from God, a sinner, who's never ever cried out to God before, your solution, your hope is the same thing. To call out to God, to appeal to his mercy and to ask God to forgive you. Whether you're the highest or the lowest, it doesn't make any difference. And this man lifted up his soul to God and he found help. This is our second Bible reading, Luke 23. Don't worry, it's not a long reading. Luke chapter 23. Verses 32 to 43. 23, 32, 43, which is on page 746. I'm just going to read this little story and learn from it. So... Luke 23, 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothing by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, Ha! He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, but we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Pick up this story, change direction a little bit. 
We walk with Jesus as he goes up to the hill of Calvary, the hill of Golgotha, to be crucified. Two criminals were crucified with him. We don't know much about them. Matthew's gospel calls them robbers. Here they're called criminals. These men, I believe, were small fry. These men weren't some great heroes or zealots or terrorists who were fighting against the Romans. They were insignificant men. Why do I think that? Because when Jesus was put on trial, there was a choice, if you remember, between Barabbas and Jesus. And Pilate gave the people a choice. He asked them, who do you want to be freed? And they asked Barabbas. He didn't even give the people a choice about these two other men. They were just nobodies. He knew that people would choose either Jesus or Barabbas. And of course, what happened is all Barabbas' supporters were happy because their man was freed. And Jesus' opponents were happy as well because the one that they saw as such a threat to their power and authority was now being led away on that one-way journey to the hill of Calvary, to the cross. When people walked up that hill to the cross, that was the end of the journey. There was no way back. You were dead. You were gone. You were finished. Hopeless situation. It wasn't as though these were romantic kind of things. You ever seen those old films about Dick Turpin? And, you know, he was actually from Essex, by the way. Dick Turpin... And, the, you know, the French Revolution, people go to the guillotine or go to the gallows, and it's kind of romantic, romantic hero, making the ladies swoon as they go up there. This wasn't like that. This was pitiful and shameful. <coughs> Two nobodies heading to be killed. Ignominious, shameful, undramatic. By a busy road, people passed by. They saw crucifixions every single day. Nothing spectacular. Not like those films you see of Jesus with a big mountain and people gathered around. Just by the road, rubbish, flies, dust, filth, squalor, death, routine execution. Even the soldiers couldn't care less. They just cast, die, lots to get the clothing. Just another job, another day at the office. Now, you don't need me to go into the, the horrible details of crucifixion, but I've researched it a bit. They would nail the prisoners there with these seven-inch nails, severing the median nerve in the wrists. It's most likely that Jesus' hands would have been paralysed on the cross excruciating pain and once you were on that cross all you could do was spend hours whiling away in the heat of the day waiting to die agonising, flies buzzing round you people mocking, getting weaker and weaker until eventually the mercy of death cardiac arrest, collapse of the lungs asphyxiation, trying to pull yourself up to breathe every time you went back down onto the nails, blood everywhere horrible way to die it was meant to be horrible. Placated up there, naked, probably naked, in front of the whole world to see as an example of a criminal. Lowest of the low. Society was only too glad to get rid of these people. Now, I imagine these men who were crucified would react in different ways. Some, perhaps, would be cursing and defiant right to the last, trying to play the hero. Some would make a pitiful cry for mercy like a child begging for mercy, please, please don't kill me. And some perhaps would protest their innocence, but it would be completely useless. Nobody would save them. Nobody would speak for them. But not Jesus. Jesus, when he went there, he didn't curse. He didn't protest his innocence. He didn't rail against the soldiers. He didn't shout anything at all. Isaiah 53 tells us, he was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb led to, the, led to the slaughter. He went meekly to his death because he knew that's what he came to do. You're seeing here on this cross a man, a man totally surrendered to the will of God. Totally surrendered, 100%. Suffering unlike the others because of obedience to God. The others were crucified for their sins, for their wickedness, for their crimes. Jesus was on that cross because of love, because of obedience. And yet, while he was on that cross, God imputed to him the wrath, the punishment that is due to us. And he became a wretched figure, subject to the full weight of the wrath of God. Look, you know, those things we read in Psalm 25, loneliness, affliction, anguish, all these things. Jesus knew those things and he drank them to the very dregs. Beyond any human words, he drank those things, experienced those things that David experiences. A sin offering for his people. And yet, in the midst of all this, he doesn't cry out except say, Father, forgive them, he prays, for they do not know what they're doing. That must have turned a few heads. question I asked myself as I prepared this. Could Jesus at that moment have prayed Psalm 25? Could he have said to the Lord, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul? Could he have cried out to his father, according to your love, remember me? Could he have prayed those prayers? Would he have been heard? Could he have asked God to give him deliverance from shame, from his enemies who are now mocking him to his face? From his anguish, would he have been heard? I think Gethsemane gives us a clue. We do not know, do we, the anguish that Christ bore on that cross, experienced. We can never know. But in the garden before he went to the cross, Jesus cried out, asking that this cup will be taken from him. The cup meaning the cup of God's wrath. He didn't want to go to the cross. Who would want to go to that cross with the wrath of God being so liberally poured out upon a man? He cries out, Lord, if it's possible, let this not be the case. But not what I will, but what you will. Surrender to the will of God. I don't want to go to the cross, but I will go. I'll go for my people. And I'll go because I love you, Father. And it's because you and I have hatched this plan before the beginning of the world, before eternity, to save a people, redeem a people. So on that cross, Jesus must have cried out to God, I believe, in his heart. Asked to be delivered from this hour. You know what? As he cried out to God, if he had cried out these prayers, deliver me, I lift up my soul. You know what he would have heard? He would have heard a no. And a silence. God turning his face away. Instead of comfort. Instead of kindness. Instead of salvation. God subjects him to the full weight of his wrath. Turns his face away. And the son of God is stricken. Can you imagine how awful that must have been for Jesus? To be completely rejected by his God, by his father. He could, like the psalmist, have asked God not to remember the sins of his people. Not that Jesus, you understand, ever committed any sin, but the sin was imputed to him as though he had committed every sin that his people would ever commit. As though he had done them all. And he could have asked God, forgive me, forgive me for these sins. And God would have said, no, you will pay the penalty for those sins. And that's what he did. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what does Jesus do on the cross? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he got back, I believe, silence. God utterly forsook him. Now, back to the story. 
Verse 35, you see, even the rulers mock Jesus. These godless men, hardened to the last, mocking him. Matthew's Gospel, we read what they say. Let God rescue him now, if he now wants him. The psalmist David prays for rescue. Jesus could have prayed for rescue. He would have found none at all. And these men, these fools, completely missed the point of God's plan. God's Messiah would one day come in glory to judge the living and the dead. Mighty conquering king. But at that moment he had to be the suffering servant. Suffering for his people. A sacrificial lamb. Atonement. Propitiation for sin. They missed it. And even the soldiers join in. Look at verse 37. They miss it completely. They mock him as well. And to make matters even worse, to compound it, even one of the criminals joins in. Actually, in the other Gospels, it says all, both of the criminals are mocking him. Perhaps one of them had a change of heart. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. This man had no idea of Christ's nature or Christ's purpose. He mockingly asked for salvation from the cross. He has no idea about an eternal perspective, about life beyond the grave. He wants salvation now. But he didn't believe that Jesus could save him. He was just mocking. I want you to remember this, that troubles in a person's life do not necessarily bring them closer to God. Sometimes we have this idea that when the wheels come off in somebody's life, they might turn to God. In some cases, God uses that. In other cases, it actually hardens them even more. Trouble. They rail against God and blame him. You know, the cross always brings separation. But those who believe and those who don't believe, those who blame God and those who say, yes, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Now, one of these men, these criminals, this nobody on the cross, next to Jesus, life slipping away, he sticks up for Jesus. Verse 40. Why? Why did he stick up for Jesus? What did he see in this man that made him so impressed? Perhaps it was the dignity of Jesus, not cursing, not like so many other prisoners, trying to be a hero. Quiet, meek, dignified. Behold the man. Perhaps it was that that he saw. Perhaps he'd been around the court and he saw how Jesus was mistreated by those two sham courts, Herod and Pilate, how he'd been accused falsely by his people. Perhaps he was disgusted by that. Perhaps he had heard Jesus teaching somewhere before and he knew something of the gospel. Whatever, whatever it was, it was the Holy Spirit doing that deep and profound work in his heart, making him a new creation. And he rebukes the other, his uh, comrade. He says, don't you fear God's judgment? Judgment is coming. You are hours away from a lost eternity and you're making it worse. You're compounding it. We're in the same position. How can you mock when you're in the same position? And what's more, we deserve it. We deserve it. We've done crimes. We've committed crimes and we deserve this, what we're getting now. Not like this man. Not like this man. Something very different about him. He looked at Jesus and he saw that he was good. He wasn't a criminal. He hadn't done anything at all to deserve being on that cross. Have you seen what he does here? He admits his own guilt and confesses the innocence of Christ. He says, we're, we're guilty. I'm guilty. 
rebukes his comrade. There's no recorded answer. We don't know what the other man did. Most probably his heart was hardened. He turns away. But then this man beautifully turns to Jesus, verse 42. A dying man to a dying saviour. And he does what the psalmist does. He lifts up his soul to God, to Christ. No elaborate words. He doesn't quote the whole psalm. But he echoes some of its sentiments. Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me again. No demands. No protestation of his rights. The only thing a sinner can pray, so simple that a child could pray. Just a simple cry to God, to Christ, remember me. How much did this man understand of Christ's purpose? How much did he understand the cross, what was going on next to him? We don't know, but we do know this, that he obviously believed that Christ could help him. Here we have a helpless one with the only one who could help him if he chose to do so. Reminds me of that passage in, in the Gospels where the man says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are the same kind of humble appeal to Christ, if you are willing, I know you can do this. I believe you can do this. Look at the contrast between him and those so-called men of God. <clears throat> Self-righteous to a man, mocking Jesus, mocking the Son of God, mocking their Messiah. Look at this extraordinary thing. This, this man, this criminal, looks next to him to this reviled figure, crucified and executed as a pretender, deserted by everyone, wretched, heading for death. And yet he looks at this man, he believes several things. Faith fills his heart, insight and wisdom, knowledge of who Jesus is. I want you to notice what he believes about Jesus. Now think, think again how, how extraordinary this must be to look at Jesus dying next to him, crucified as a criminal, and believe these things about this man. That Jesus is not finished on the cross. He believes Jesus is not finished. He believes that Jesus one day, when he dies, will continue to live. And he also believes this, that Jesus is a king. And of course, a king must have a kingdom. He talks about Jesus' kingdom, but he confesses that Christ is a king. And that Christ, what's more, has authority to admit sinners to his kingdom, if he wills. And he also knows this and believes this, that if he turns to Christ, and if Christ shows mercy and favour to him, he will have a hope of future and blessing and deliverance after the cross has done its worst. And unlike the mocking fool on the other cross, he doesn't focus on deliverance in this life. He doesn't ask Christ to take him off the cross. He doesn't ask Christ to deal with his enemies then and there. He looks ahead to the kingdom and asks for a place in that kingdom. And I suspect very strongly that he believed in his heart the sentiment of Psalm 25, that no one whose hope was in Jesus would ever be put to shame. It wasn't wishful thinking, like a last straw, I'll, I'll try this for, see what happens. No, he believed, he saw something in Jesus. Jesus doesn't let him down, does he? According to his own mercy and love, according to his, his nature, Christ, God the Father, will never ever turn away a sinner who comes with sincere repentance. Never ever. He can't do that. He will not ignore the plight of someone who appeals to his mercy, lifts up their soul to him. And he says these comforting words, these beautiful words, 
comfort for every believer and comfort for this man. I tell you the truth. No greater guarantee than that for Christ to tell us the truth. Christ says, I tell you the truth, you know it's going to happen. You will be with me in paradise. Christ says, you're right. You do well to trust in me. Because you put your faith in me, death is not the end for me and it will not be the end for you either. Because you appeal to me, you will be delivered from your despair, anguish, distress, sins, shame, all these things that David talks about in Psalm 25 in paradise where these things do not exist. You will be remembered. He asked to be remembered and Christ says you will be remembered. Now, we don't know what this man said. There's no further interaction between this man and Jesus. It's not recorded. But he took Jesus at his word, as we ought to do. He doesn't ask for questions. He doesn't ask for any clarification about what that means. He just trusts and believes. And that moment, he was saved at the last opportunity. A trophy of grace. And Satan. Satan was there like an angry lion waiting for a nice morsel to drop into his pit. And he was snatched from his jaws, this sinner, and redeemed and rescued. And Satan must have roared like an angry lion to have been deprived of this morsel. This man, this criminal, would never have a life of use in the kingdom. He would never be part of a church. He probably had no great theology. But it didn't matter. It was enough to know that Jesus could save him. I want to say this to you, sometimes the most unlikely people and the least deserving people as we see them are the objects of God's mercy. Let's not fall into this trap of thinking that somebody, because somebody is quite a moral person and pays their taxes and helps the charity, that they're somehow more likely, more deserving to go, go into the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes Christ saves people in quite remarkable ways. People we, we, we write off and say they're, they're doomed, they're lost, they'll never turn to Christ. We must keep praying for people must keep witnessing to people. Who knows what, that, what will happen, how God will use that seed that's been planted. You know, that man was saved right at the end of his life, the last chance. It's not good to put it off, is it? I think we're all Christians here, but it's not good to put off trusting in Christ. You never know when your time will come. Last week, uh, the old man, Peter, that I used to visit in the care home, 82, slipped into eternity. As far as I know, a lost eternity did try to witness to him. We never know. We never know, do we? And Nina, dear sister, only young, she knew the Lord. She went to be with him into his kingdom. But many people don't have that chance. They just put it off. Don't want to know. And then it's too late. And the curtain falls. This man had lived a bad life and yet his name was written in God's book of life. As I said, it was an ignominious and shameful end, but he had a wonderful destiny, a glorious destiny. While others mocked all around on every side, this man slipped, as his life ebbed away, slipped quietly into Christ's kingdom, received reward, peace, deliverance. Meanwhile, on the cross next to him, the saviour of the world, Instead of being delivered and remembered, Jesus was rejected, cursed, and cut off. And all those things in Psalm 25, the distress, the anguish, the sin, enemies, despair, 
as I said earlier, he experienced beyond human words, beyond human comprehension. And any hope of mercy, love, comfort, deliverance, all the things that David prays for, were deprived him at that moment. Of course, he was to be delivered later on. He was to be raised to life. But at that moment, he had to suffer and drink it to the dregs. Why? So that when people like this man, this criminal, when people like us cry out to God, we will be remembered and saved rather than stricken and forsaken. God could leave us to be consumed by our despair, facing the full consequences of our sins, trapped by the snare of sin, utterly ashamed, rejected by man of God, man and God. But you know what? Christ allowed himself to have all those things done to him so that the man on the cross and people like us could have deliverance and mercy and be remembered by God. Now, I always make this appeal, I believe everybody here is a Christian, but if you're not a Christian, and I wish I could preach this to a thousand people, you need to call on God and ask him to remember you. Lift up your soul to him, do business with him. But if you are a genuine Christian who loves God, and like David, you may perhaps have struggles and problems, you also need to lift up your soul to God. Perhaps you've fallen into some kind of sin. Perhaps you just find yourself overwhelmed by the circumstances. You also can cry out to God and ask for mercy. Remember this, though. If God listens to you, he will listen to you. It's because of Christ, because he was rejected and cut off for your sake. I want to leave this with you. This world is so uncertain, isn't it? Full of problems. This is a cast iron um, blessing that you can take into this week. God says, Christ says, no one whose hope, well, we say about Christ, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Okay? No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Let's pray.